0: Here's a few words with Gord Roche of Southwest Fire Academy. Hey, Gord.
1: Hey, how are you? Good, man. How are you? Good. I'd like to start out by congratulating Jesse Bond, who's one of the Southwest Fire Academy owners and instructors. Today, he's receiving the Ontario Medal of Firefighter Bravery. And also, big congratulations out to all the other recipients.
0: Well, that's fantastic. I didn't know that was happening.
1: Yes, happening today. It's for a fire where they save a whole family pretty good outcome. Awesome. Yeah, we're very proud of those guys. It was a crew from Tay Township. Did a pretty remarkable thing. Also like to add, we're proud to be working with Multiple Calls Podcast and supporting the great work that the podcast is doing and look forward to a strong and long partnership going forward.
0: Yeah, same. I'm really excited that this worked out and we made it happen. We align so well and I think this is a perfect match.
1: It is because I think like minds and like visions is a great thing. I thought I would go into just a little bit about who Southwest Fire Academy is as your new sponsor on the podcast. We are a private career college in Ontario. We have MOUs with the Office of the Fire Marshal, and we offer programs ranging from firefighter pre-service to approved technical rescue programs, officer development programs, hazardous materials, and we have the programs for pre-service, like we said, industry, and volunteer and full-time fire departments alike. As far as upcoming courses go, They're all available to be seen for the year on our website, www.southwestfireacademy.ca. We have several technical rescue programs, including machine rescue, rope rescue, confined space rescue, water rescue coming up this summer. And we'd also encourage anyone that's interested in being a firefighter to check out our pre-service program on our website and give us a call if they have any questions.
0: And you'll probably run into me through one of those.
1: That's one of the great things, I think, about our program is whether it's a technical rescue program, hazardous materials, it doesn't matter. We bring in instructors and have instructors in our portfolio that have the -the on-the-job experience and have actually done these types of calls and rescues and hazardous materials events and things like that. So not only are you coming and getting the academic and the textbook version, but you can get real life experience as far as tapping into those instructors and using their real life experience. Yeah, it's a fantastic group
0: and I'm learning a lot myself from everybody as I work with them.
1: Well, we're absolutely stoked to have you and again, super happy to be supporting the Multiple Calls podcast.
0: everyone welcome to multiple calls episode 46 I'm Scott Hewlett it changed my perspective I saw things through a new lens this is often received as a statement indicating an experience that caused a shift that's net result was a positive but it's just a change in the way someone filters and experiences the world you can feel love for something or someone one moment and feel distaste the next the same event can result in PTSD post-traumatic growth or both with undetermined time intervals your hardware and software are continually updating to your reality so many variables have been responsible for who you are and where you are at in your life at this very moment the community and era you were born into the genes you were dealt the experiences you were raised with and the choices that you think you made with free will but were more truthfully shaped by biological drives Instinct, set and setting, limited options, and chance. Whether you love everything about who you are and where you are in life, or you don't, not everything that you recognize as you have been by your design. If everyone started this game that is life with all the information, options, resources, time, and hindsight as foresight, it would be reasonable to label individual choices as good or bad and where each one of us finds ourselves today as earned and deserved. But it's never the case. This realization is less about removing ownership, accountability, and control, and more about gaining some semblance of them. If you can unravel why you are the way you are, and understand how that affects the way you experience the world, you can start to make better imperfect decisions, and give yourself the gift of grace. My guest this episode has experienced powerful moments in navigating the crossroads of his life, which have altered his view of himself, his family, and his place in the fire service. It's a privilege to bring you his perspective. Here's my chat with Mark Brewer. Tell me where you grew up and what your family structure dynamic was like.
2: My childhood for me, I think, was a typical 1970s childhood. I was born in a very small town on the shores of Lake Huron, Bluevale, Ontario. Moved down to the huge city of Milton at the time when I was five. I was not interested in school that much. For me, it was all about sports. And being around people and doing things and just being in the classroom, it was so structured and you sat there and I couldn't wait to get out to recess and hang with everybody and play with everybody. And I think that's where my love of team sports came from was just from that. I had an older brother, very studious, a scholar. He was very much into school, complete opposite of me. I had an older sister, the same, a scholar, very much into school, music, the band. Then came me. I always considered myself kind of the black sheep of the family because my younger sister was also very much into school and neither of those three were into sports. They belonged to the math club, the chess club. It was just completely different. They would go to music lessons and I would go to hockey and soccer and baseball. And over the years, I started feeling like I was the black sheep of the family because I was not interested in school. There was just so much more in life going on that really I'm wasting six hours in the classroom when I can be outside. And What did mom and dad do? My parents were, again, I think a very typical, my mom was a stay-at-home mom, looked after the house, cooked the meals, looked after the children. My dad was a plant manager. It sounds funny, but a plant manager at a cheese factory in Oakville, as a result he was at work all the time. like he would leave at 5 thirty. He would come home at six, get called in on Saturday. It was very much a what I perceived to be the perfect family setting. Dad would come home at six and everyone would run to the kitchen table and we'd have dinner because Dad was home now. and he would spend an hour with us patting us on the head. Good job, you know, and everything he did and That was the relationship with my dad, which I just felt that was typical. Like that's what every family was doing. My friends, their parents were similar. They had a stay-at-home mom. Their dad went to work. They didn't have a lot of interaction with their dad. It was mom that did everything. She baked, she sewed. It was that old-fashioned values and behavior, I guess you could say.
0: Yeah, that home support system.
2: Yeah, 100%.
0: Did she go back to work at any point when you guys reach a certain age? That was pretty common too.
2: Yeah. So when I say we lived in Milton, we lived in the outskirts of Milton, out in the country, and we lived across the road from Chudley's Apple Farm. I'm sure a lot of people are very familiar with Chudley's. My mom started working there, I think, when I was in grade five, because my younger sister would have been in grade two. So she started working there kind of part time after we got on the bus. At nine o'clock and she'd be home at three to greet us from the bus and so she started working there and developed a relationship with mrs chudley carol chudley and became very close friends with the chudleys and as a result our family is very close with the chudleys like my brothers and sisters and the chudley siblings are close and we all eventually ended up working there after my dad retired at the plant he actually started working at chudleys as well so <laughs> everyone in our family worked at chudleys
0: that would be a nice in for the baking materials too.
2: Yeah. And my mom never had any formal training in business or anything like that. And she ended up being in charge of their retail. I'm just so impressed with her that she just learned on the fly and became who she was at Chudley's. It's just, it's, it's unbelievable for a farm girl that had no education, basically other than grade 12 high school to end up where she did. It's just, it's very impressive.
0: Yeah, it was a similar thing with my dad, too. It was just the way it was. And people just got a feel for who you were and what you could do. And they trusted you and gave you work. And you kept succeeding at it. And they kept moving you up. It was, <laughs> it just seems like a more authentic, natural, more interpersonal way of doing things.
2: Yeah, I think so. I think we've really lost that. You don't get a chance to prove yourself to, yes, I can do this job. And as you say, the better you get, the more you move up. And I think we've lost that in society. And now it's all about what you have on paper and and you don't have a chance to show what you can do.
0: Or build the relationship because really that's where the trust comes, right?
2: Oh, 100% that people are like, oh, you can do this. One I'm going to give you more responsibility and now you can do that. And, and yeah, you move up that way. Yeah. So.
0: And, and they can trust you.
2: right 100 (laughs) percent.
0: what about sports and hobbies so you mentioned hockey you mentioned soccer so how did that start and maybe you can tie in were your parents supportive of you not being into school as much as your siblings were did they support that was it difficult for them maybe walk me through that
2: i don't think it was difficult for them i think they saw that it was an outlet And the more I did sports, the more I could do well at school because I realized that after my six hours in the classroom, I was going to a hockey practice or I was going to a hockey game or in the summer, baseball, soccer, whatever. So the support was huge. With four kids and only dad working in the 70s and early 80s, there wasn't a lot of money. So I just played house league. I always dreamed of playing rep and playing on the travel team. But I completely understood that there's only so much money to go around and there's four of us. And if my brother's going off to band camp or my sister's going to horseback riding or something, I wasn't the focus There is a little bit of regret to think what might have been or could have been if there had been more money, but I don't harbor any ill will because I completely understand. They were struggling through raising a family of four kids on one salary in the beginning and then with my mom going back to work. But as I said earlier, sports was my life from as early as I can remember. I'm going to say five years old. I have the most vivid memories of going to hockey. It wasn't called Timbits Hockey back then. It was called Monday Nighters. And dad coming home and saying, I signed you up for Monday Night Hockey. And just the, oh my God, I get to go to Monday Night Hockey. Because I'd been out on the pond since I was like three, skating and stuff like that. So this was my first introduction. And I can remember going to the arena and thinking, this is the NHL. I'm playing in the NHL right now. But I have a picture of me Monday night. It's all like used equipment. I don't have a jersey. And I just look back and I think it's so funny that my excitement about being there was like I finally... I'm in organized sports. I'm with a team. I'm with people in a dress room. Like it just, it was awesome. It just grew from there. And every year you move up and it's kind of the same kids in house league. You'd move teams and stuff, but it's the same kids that are there. And Just the bond and the friendship was something that I sought out. It was amazing. It was absolutely amazing.
0: How were things socially for you in school? What was it about that locker room? You're around kids your age, right? In this group and you're excited to be around them at school and that same excitement isn't there. So what is it that drew you to the sports feeling and not school?
2: I want to say at school, I was very social as well. It sounds, I don't know, egotistic or whatever, but I was popular at school. It was the classroom, being in the classroom and sitting at your desk that was like, I, I don't understand why we're doing this, it's crazy. But the friends that I had in hockey, they were friends at school and it was just similar interests and they had a similar upbringing and they had similar dreams and similar hopes. And maybe because my older brother and older sister were so much into school and higher learning and different on the arts side that I felt a disconnect from them. And that's maybe why I sought out the sports and really enjoyed it because it's like, hey, these are my people. They like the same things and we do the same things and we talk about the same things.
0: Maybe with the sports team, it's also that you're all working together towards the same goal, and in school, you're not.
2: Yeah, well, in school, obviously, there's the individual, like Beth, she's trying to get 95, and I'm like, I just want to pass. Like, I, I just want to pass to go to grade three type deal. And in the sports, it, it wasn't about winning or losing for me. Like, I could care less if we lost or if we won. It was just being there and being around people that enjoy doing the same thing as I did.
0: Who were your guides and mentors through that time?
2: Well, obviously, the coaches. Back then, it was all dads that coached. My dad volunteered the one year. I remember that year. I'm going to say it was minor Adam or maybe major Adam. And it was a big deal that, wow, dad's on the bench. And so it was my friends like Mr. Auger and Mr. Petty. They were dads, but they were also, I don't want to say friends. They were, I guess, mentors, right? And when you go over to your friend's house that's your friend's dad, but it's just a different relationship maybe when they're on the bench. They talk to you different and I think you looked at them a little different when they were on the bench or in the dressing room than when you went over to a friend's house to play and was Mr. Auger then, but it was like Coach Vic on the bench. I'm going to say my coaches... Back then, unlike today, coaches were allowed to discipline and they were allowed to impart some wisdom on you and guide you a lot more than today. And I think they helped build who I am. And it was encouraged. It's the same as the teachers were allowed to discipline and guide you. Now, when I say about school, there were a couple teachers that were very important to me. So I would add them as a mentor, my grade four, Mrs. Young. I don't know what about her, but she was a big influence. She might've got me on the path of you need to do well in school to do well in life. So maybe that's why I reflect back on her as getting me through school. <laughs>
0: right. <laughs> so. And you mentioned the gym coach.
2: Uh, Mr. Kamarni. that was later on, that was in high school. Obviously met him in grade nine. He was like, he coached basketball and volleyball and By the time I got to high school, like I was a five-sport guy, hockey at high school, soccer, baseball, basketball, volleyball. He coached like three of those five teams. Again, I entered high school in 1982, so coaches were allowed to discipline and coach you on life moments and have those conversations and stuff. And so I became, I don't want to say close, but we had definitely a a close relationship. And like I would hang out in the gym on my spares and just – I don't want to say awe of him but he was a big influence Mr. Kamarni
0: respect and admiration
2: yeah of the way he interacted with all the athletes and not just the athletes the way he interacted he was such a social man and everybody in the high school we didn't have the hugest high school maybe 1500 students but everybody in the high school knew who Mr. Kamarni was and people would go to him and like students would go to him and like he would have conversations and life advice and it just it was to me, he was more than just a gym coach. He was like a life coach to the high school. Like it was unbelievable his relationship. And his door was always open. Like he always had time for the students. He was actually the guy I was like, you know what? I want to be Mr. Camary. When I grow up, I want to be Mr. Camary. That how incredible is your job is sports <laughs> and you have influence to young kids and can set them on a path. I'm just like, this isn't that that's incredible. That would be absolutely incredible. Dream job.
0: Has it been difficult for you now having kids? I'm assuming you probably coach now or you have coached and having to transition from the way you were coached to the present day of the way coaches need to be. Is that tough for you?
2: It was extremely tough. And yes, I coached both my boys, Mason and Mitchell, in all the sports they did, baseball, soccer, hockey. And it was two or three years into their, I'm going to call it sporting career, but it started to really change where the coaches were just there to say kind of like, okay, you go out next. There was no, don't give them any life advice. Oh, don't, you can't discipline them. And it was just such a departure from the way I grew up and what I felt like coaching should be an extension. But with that said, I definitely see the side of where they're going, because there have been some very bad incidences. So they have to reel it in and stuff. And so, yes, it is frustrating. And because I feel that over my lifetime, I have some to offer back to these kids and I can give them some life direction, life coaching, life experiences. And it's just, it's not what they're wanting from coaches anymore. It's, uh, and it is sad.
0: Do you find it tough to interact as a parent with your boys' coaches? And are you trying to fill things in for them or trying to explain to them how it was for you, how it is now, give them the perspective, fill in the gaps?
2: I backed away probably when the boys started reaching 12 and 13. I felt it was important that they started hearing a different voice. So there wasn't a lot of interaction and asking the coach to do that or this. Like I say, I, I started backing away and I thought it was important that they heard a different voice and a different perspective. And definitely now that they're older and they're much older now, I guess. Wow. 23 and 21. Obviously I have nothing to do. Like I, I just, I go and sit in the stands and watch them and go home. They're both still playing hockey. They're both still playing summer sports. And it's funny. They both comment about, dad, why are you still coming to watch me? <laughs> And I'm like, I'll come and watch you when you're 40. Like, it's, I enjoy it. <laughs> right. You can't get away from me uh, yeah. type deal. I'll come and watch. But my younger son had a game last night. I showed up at the start of the game. As soon as the game was over, I left. And I just, it's something I enjoy.
0: My parents are the same and it's lovely, right? It's it's kind of nice to feel like you're 15 sometimes still. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking around the 15-year-old age, you were part of a church youth group around that period of your life. <laughs> I can't imagine that, so I just do not want to hear about it.
2: <laughs> I think that anybody that would hear I was part of a church group would go, really, Mark Brewer? Come on. <laughs> my parents were, when they moved to down to Milton when I was five, they were heavily involved in the church back home in Bluevale, a small farming community. The church was very important. My dad met my mom at church. So... They were heavily involved in the church. So when they moved down to Milton, we joined the Boston Presbyterian Church. And we'd go every Sunday. My dad was on the board of directors at the church. My friends' dads were also on. Like it was, again, a small community all at the church. And it's just something we did. And I have very vivid memories of going to church on Sundays, going down to Sunday school, coming back up graduating from Sunday school to now you're an adult, I think it was like around 13, 14, maybe that you got to stay upstairs for the whole service. And like, that was a big deal. Mr. Whiting was a neighbor, five or six houses, like in the country, five or six houses away. And he saw the need because there was this whole group of us, probably about 12 to 15 of us that were all kind of aging out of Sunday school at the same time. And when you start becoming that age you start like i don't want to go to church anymore I, you know i have other things to do or whatever and so he developed this church group where the 12 to 15 of us between the ages of 14 and 17 I could come and it was two nights a week i'm going to say monday and thursdays and we would it was just a youth group and you know we'd play cards or we'd go tobogganing as a group or any activity that Youths would do. we did it together. We would have parties at someone's house and and sprinkled in there. There was some life coaching and there was some church teachings, I'm gonna say, nothing heavy or anything like that, but just an, I think enough to keep us involved in the church. and that group became my lifelong childhood friends like those twelve to fifteen are my friends now that I have from my childhood. We reflect back on that time, and we now at our age, we all look back and go, "Really, we we're in a church youth group," and it's and and it's like, "Yeah, we we're in a church youth group," and but it wasn't heavy and it wasn't hardcore. Is was, we had so much fun. I, I just we went tobogganing at Kelso, and we just did a lot of fun things. We went bowling. We just it was again. We were just hanging out and being social and. I almost want to say like being a team, like we became so tight. And honestly, from my childhood, those 12 to 15 people are my friends now. Like that's who I have from my grade five, grade six, grade 11. They're my friends.
0: And now we have smartphones.
2: <laughs> yeah, but we still get together and and we still talk. And like when we get together, we talk about, oh yeah, I remember this time in youth group and oh, we, went, we did this and it just – It was such a fun, interesting time. And that's when I say to people, oh, yeah, I was in a youth group. You think immediately of this heavy teaching of the church and everything. And it just, it wasn't that. It was just, it was hanging out and having fun with some sprinklings of the church, which was was good.
0: And where the smartphone comment came from was reflecting on, because I'm having some memories as you're saying those from your childhood. I had similar ones as well. And now I just think of the kids now versus us, right? I think we just had so much more space to breathe.
2: Oh my goodness. Uh, yeah, for sure. Like, and I see it in my two boys, as I said, they're 23 and 21 and yeah, the smartphone is, has changed a lot of things and for the better, but at the same time for the worse.
0: From sports, you obviously had a strong work ethic driving towards a goal, being part of a team. What jobs did you have growing up and how did that all translate
2: So the jobs I had, as I mentioned earlier, we all worked at Chudley's. So it was exciting over at Chudley's during the fall time, like when the pick your own apple season started, thousands and thousands of people came to Chudley's. And when I look back, I think that was my first introduction into diversity. Like in Milton, we were a population and demographic, but the people that came to Chudley's was, they're all from Toronto and I started working there, I want to say when I was 12 and just doing, and it was a direct result of my older brother already working over there, my older sister already working there. And so it was like, well, yeah, Mark can work here. And just little Joe jobs, I think I was paid like a dollar an hour. I was involved and I'm like, oh, I got to go to work today on a Saturday or whatever. And it was exciting and it was exciting to move up year after year to oh well do you want to drive the tractor this year and it's like what oh my goodness I get to drive the tractor and then the next year you're in charge of this and it just I think it laid down the foundation of if you work hard and you put in an effort you get to move up and that goes back to what we were saying earlier where I think we've kind of lost that connection and it solidified that i can actually make something of myself here like and it's all on me like if i work hard i'm gonna get to drive the tractor next year and at night and i'll show mr chudley that he can trust me and everything like that so there was days i remember like 12 or 13 and i would go over there at 7 in the morning and i'd come home at 8 or 9 at night and i loved it so i worked there part-time like in the fall like They're closed in the winter and kind of open back up at the late summer. That was my job. I never worked at McDonald's. I never worked retail or anything like that. It was outside. I drove the tractor to drive the people out to the orchard. I remember fondly the one year Mr. Chudley said, you get to be in charge of roasting the corn. And I thought that was a huge deal. Like, wow, you're actually trusting me to take this all on myself. And
0: You start to realize that people value you. They recognize you right? And you probably operated with very little supervision through that whole time.
2: Oh, 100%. It was just like, here's the job, go ahead. And we'll see you kind of at the end of the day. And the other thing that I took value in was some of the people that I knew from high school, they would work there and they would last like two or three days and they would either quit or they would get fired because they couldn't handle it or they were irresponsible or whatever like that. And I kind of rose up and I'm like, Yeah, I'm here for my third year in a row and I'm getting given more stuff and more responsibility. And it was a really, does it sound strange, a coming out party or like it just, it was, I was becoming me, I guess. And it was awesome. I absolutely loved it. It was, everything was outdoors. There was nothing indoors. It was machinery. It was everything that I loved. So I worked there in the fall until I was 16, 17, 18 school As I've said, wasn't my thing. So I didn't go back the one fall and I worked there full time. I made the apple cider. They had their own apple cider press, which is a a rarity. And I operated that. Like I'd get up every morning at 4 a.m. and head over to Chudley's and I would make apple cider all day and I'd bag it. But I think it was at that time, after doing that for six months or whatever, that I realized, like, okay, this can't be my life because it's fun but it's not paying anything. Like I didn't have a car. I'd had some money to go out to the movies and stuff, but I quickly realized this is not the future. It's fun, but this is not the future.
0: It's served its purpose and taught you what it needs to teach you
2: which is great. People get stuck in jobs and after a while they're like, whoa, this is not good. And they're too far in. And it was a real eye opener. And I'm glad it all happened the way it did. I think it set me on my path, and which is good. That's what part-time jobs or your first jobs are supposed to do to, to set you on your path, I think.
0: Yeah, I had a similar experience at a number of jobs where my first few days there, I saw people that were there for the long haul and I realized I'm not going to be like them in here for the full time. And, and that wasn't in a negative way. I just knew it wasn't for me, but I still really respected being there for the time I was and put in a full effort while I worked there.
2: Yeah. 100%. As I said, I saw people come and go and they quit or they got fired and I would get a raise and it was just, it was like, okay, I put in some serious effort there and I got a raise. I see what's happening here. And it just, it laid a really good foundation and I think it helped that the Brewers had such a solid relationship with the Chudleys, and I don't want to say I was given any extras or any allowances, because Mr. Chudley was very hard on me, and he demanded a lot, and I certainly appreciate that, but the relationship between the Brewers and the Chudleys helped us all, I think.
0: And where did you transition to next?
2: I had wanted to be a police officer since I was like four or five years old. I remember being a child thinking when I become an adult, I didn't know when that was. I didn't know what age or what that was. It was just always in my head. When I become an adult, I want to be a police officer. And I couldn't get enough of early TV shows, seeing a police car on the road. So after Chad is 18, it's like, okay, I need to start pursuing my dream of being a police officer. How do I get there? So I joined the military. I joined the military as a military police officer. That was going to be my trade. The plan was, and this was with the recruiter as well, the plan was I would do my three years, get my trade as military police officer, come out of the military, get hired by a municipal police force. My dream was Halton. So I joined the military. I left for Cornwallis for basic training in November of 1987. And there was some issues that happened there. I think it was in week nine, I was called in. So in, in basic training, you have all the trades from across the military, all doing their basic training together. So there was, I think 22 of us that were going on to, after our basic training, we're going on to military police trade training. So in week nine, we were called in individually, the 22 of us, and we were told that the military police trade training course had been canceled and that we needed to remaster into another trade. And My sole purpose for going into the military was to get the military police trades training. And it was a very disappointing time in my life. I don't want to do another trade. I want to be a military police. And after some discussions, the military gave me an honorable discharge after basic training. Their thought was, you don't want to be here for something else. So we don't want to keep you here. So they gave me an honorable discharge. I came home. I felt no shame about leaving the military based on the fact that when I was talking with the recruiter in Toronto, it was very clearly explained like, this is, I want to be military police. This is the reason why they agreed. And so then when things didn't work out, I I don't know if the military could have hard feelings or any, no hard feelings, but <laughs> there was no, there's no shame on my part to say, yeah, I left the military. I quit the military because it's not, they were not providing what they said they were going to provide. And so I came home. What's my next step? How do I, like, I'm still wanting to pursue my police officer dreams. I need to go to college. I need to take law and security. So I quickly got into Sheridan College in Brampton and took the law and security program for two years.
0: And then you transferred into corrections.
2: Well, (laughs) I didn't transfer into corrections. This is one of my bad life stories, I guess. (laughs) Bad life choices. Um, We all have them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, This changed the course of my life. So I don't know. Everything happens for a reason, and I certainly wouldn't go back and change it. But in my second year of, it was coming close to graduation, we had a family friend that was a recruiter with Peel Regional Police, Malcolm Bow. He's long retired. I got hooked up with him just as I was graduating. He helped me through the process. Now, when I say helped, he didn't pull any strings or anything. I still did all the testing. Obviously, I'm 20 years old. I'm in the prime shape. I'm prime candidate. I passed all the testings. I passed the initial interview, and all I had left back then, the final stage was a board interview. It was a panel of three, a superintendent, someone from the recruiting division, and an HR person. I guess similar to what maybe we have in fire now, but that was my last step. Before I got to that board interview, I had a motorcycle, and... I was up north and I was definitely speeding way over the speed limit. I saw an OPP officer coming towards me. He threw his lights on and I had that split second decision. Do I run or do I pull over? And my mind went right to, I'm going to pull over. I'm going to explain and I'm going to get out of this good. So I pulled right over. I was off my bike helmet off by the time he got turned around and pulled over He got out of his car and as soon as he closed the door, I had that, I made the wrong decision. I should have ran. He came up on me and was angry and mad. He was telling a story of how a motorcyclist was killed just a couple weeks earlier from speed, blah, blah, blah. I received a very large ticket. Obviously, it got back to Malcolm and Peel. He called me in and said, listen, I can send you to the board interview. But more than likely they are going to deny you based on this action. And if you get denied at the board interview, you can't apply for another year. If you withdraw your application, you can apply in six months. And I'm like, okay, well, that applying in six months is better than a year. So I withdrew my application. As a result of withdrawing my application, graduated Sheridan College. What do I do? I need a job. I'd like it related. I don't just want to be a security guard. One of the instructors at Sharon College was an ex corrections. And he said, Mark, I can hook you up with a recruiter in corrections. That would be a good start. Get in there, keep applying. So I applied to corrections and I got hired immediately. Like I'm 21 years old getting hired by corrections. And I just, I fell into it. Corrections was an extension of sports to me. We had a team. It was a group of guys. We we're all between the ages of twenty-one and twenty-six, all similar thoughts, behaviors. We hung out and the dream of police officer kind of just drifted away. And I stayed in corrections for 10 years. I'd never wanted corrections. I never thought of corrections. It just I fell into it and it sounds weird. But the whole thing of family like we were so tight, the group of us. Again, there was Twelve to fifteen of us, and like we became solid friends and solid co-workers, and it was, we would do anything for each other. It was just awesome, and I let my dream of police officer go because of this group that I was with. It was unbelievable.
0: Looking back now on that interaction with the police officer after all these years in emergency services, do you understand more? where he was coming with the emotion as he stepped out of the car when he mentioned that accident the previous week?
2: Oh my goodness, 100%. At the time, no, but now, 100%. I completely get it. And I certainly don't blame him for changing the course of my life. He was doing his job. It's what he had to do. And I understand the emotion. And it was beyond emotion. Like, he was angry. Like, it was like a... And he was older. I can picture him so clearly. Like, it goes back... Over thirty years, and I could picture him closing that door and yelling all the way, walking up to my bike, and it felt like a dad scolding his son, like "You have disappointed me so much," and I'm just like, "Wow," type deal. Like it, it was such a such a different interaction that you would have probably with police today, but again, the times are different, and police were allowed to scold you and talk to you that way and everything. And no, I certainly i don't i don't blame them for anything, and if anything. He set me on a different course and I would not change anything for the world. So I almost want to say thank you.
0: (laughs) What did your time in Corrections open your mind to? Did you feel a little sheltered when you were first there in your life and all of a sudden you realize what life is like outside of your existence and, and now you're looking at it through a different lens?
2: The unbelievable feeling of there's more in this world than just what I'm living was unbelievable. The first year was overwhelming to see and hear and just understand what is kind of going on in our world. At that time, I'd never been into Toronto. I'd never been into a like a major city. I lived in Milton. It's a small town and there was no reason. Like everything that I wanted to do was in Milton. So there's no reason to go into Toronto or when I say up north, like to Ottawa or or anything like that. Right. So here are these inmates with such different backgrounds unbelievable upbringings and from all over Ontario it was just kind of bewildering they had alcoholic fathers I didn't know anyone that had an alcoholic father like I knew my dad and my friend's dads and like I just and inmates that were abandoned by their mother or given up for adoption like I didn't even know what adoption was type deal right and so yes very very sheltered but i enjoyed the sheltered like i didn't i didn't want to go outside that and so yes in going to corrections it was very eye opening and very educational and i don't want to say good but it helped me
0: a necessary loss of innocence and maturity
2: matured very very quickly you had to and so that was one good thing looking back i wasn't ready to be a police officer after the first year yeah it you have to mature very very quickly and I needed that. I don't want to say I was playing in life, but life wasn't overly serious. Because it was sheltered, I had a stable family at home, a very stable household. I had a good friendship group, no adversity at all. And so you can be kind of immature. And so that first year, I really turned the corner. It's very interesting that my friends from high school notice they're like, wow, you have really changed, really, really changed. And some of them would say for the better, others would say not for the better, but definitely changed. Yeah.
0: Why didn't you stay? And what was your first exposure to the fire service? Why the transition from that?
2: So the reason I didn't stay back in the early nineties is 91 is when I got hired at Maplehurst. And again, it's different times. Back then I ran When I say I ran, it sounds like we're a gang, but we weren't a gang. The 12 to 15 guys that I hung out with, similar views, we felt that corrections should be run a certain way. So like, we were very high on the discipline. And the same as police officers, correction officers, correctional officers are kind of the same. You have your discretion what rules you enforce and which ones you don't, what you let go and what you don't. And the 12 to 15 guys I ran with, we were high on very strict discipline. There's rules and there's rules for a reason, and we're going to enforce them. And I don't want to say it was fun, but it was exciting. And I felt like I was making a difference for society those first five or six years. But then you start getting older and you're like, this is starting to kind of wear thin, wrestling with inmates or trying to catch them with drugs. And it, like, it's, it starts to wear thin. And it was after the birth of my first son, Mason, that I'm like, okay, there's more in life than what's happening here. But I felt kind of trapped. At that time, the hiring practices for the police was you needed a university degree. And I'm like, I'm not going back to school because A, I don't really like school and B, I don't want to. So policing started getting further and further away. We ended up moving after we got married in 94 and we moved to Flamborough And the same as my parents joined the church when they moved to Milton, I was like, I need to join something in Flamborough to become part of the community. Do I become a hockey coach? Do I join the Lions Club? What do I do? And to get into town, we moved to the country, basically the same as my childhood. We lived kind of in the similar to Waterdown, just outside the country. To drive into town, we had to drive past the volunteer hall. And I knew nothing about fire. Like there was no dream of fire. I wasn't enthralled by fire trucks. It was just, yeah, it's that's just a job. And one day I was driving by the fire department and they had a big sign out front. We're looking for volunteers. I came home and I'm like, you know what? I think that would be a good way to get involved in the community. And Diane was like, sure, why not? And literally I just went in and I applied and they're like, Yeah, you're basically you're in. We'll do training. It's I think it was three months on the weekends, and then you're a volunteer firefighter. And from day one, when I got there, I immediately saw, wait a minute, this is a team. Like, are you are you kidding me? Like, this is the job here. And then we started doing the training on the weekends and my recruit class, there was 25 of us. There's five stations in Flamborough, like spread out all over. And there was four or five of us new recruits from each station. And I quickly learned Flamborough. I got new friends across Flamborough and it just took me back to high school. It took me back to corrections. And I'm like, this is awesome. And I became fully invested in the fire department and, I was starting to do more in the fire department and I was kind of letting the corrections job distance itself from me. And in Flamborough they started a day crew where they would have the volunteers come in Monday to Friday, eight till four. It was mostly filled by full time guys from Toronto and Mississauga, just based on shift work that they were available. In corrections, I was on shift work. So I signed up for a couple and it was literally the first day crew shift I worked. It was a Tuesday. I. It's so vivid. I remember walking in. We had a uniform. I loved wearing uniforms. That's from corrections. I loved my uniform in the military. I'm a uniform guy. So on the day crew, back then, as a volunteer, you didn't have a uniform. Like you showed up in your track pants and t-shirt and went to calls. But on day crew, they gave you a uniform. So we had a fatigue shirt and fatigue pants. and Because we'd be out in the public and stuff. So that Tuesday morning, I remember walking to the station in my uniform and like, wow, I actually belong to something here. And... A Brampton legend, Brent Vasey, was working day crew that day as well. And that day on day crew turned my thoughts around about being a firefighter. What we did that day is a typical firefighter day in any municipality. We checked the trucks in the morning together. There was the bonding, the laughing and the joking. And then we, would, we went and had coffee We'd run a call. We'd come back. We'd clean things. We did a little bit of training. Then we went out and got lunch. Come back. Do some more calls. It was near the end of the day that I said to Brent, "Is this what you guys do all the time, like in a full-time department?" <laughs> He's like, "Yeah, this is this is a typical day." Well, I want to do this then. Like, this is this is what I want to do for the rest of my life, right here, right? Because this is incredible. Like, this is absolutely incredible. Mm. And literally from that day, it was like, okay, I'm going to become. I want to become a firefighter because of the team or that just being together and being doing something meaningful together type deal was just, it was just for me and I don't want to say it was an epiphany or whatever, but it was like, no, this is, this is what I want to do. Yeah. Realization. Yeah. Brent came back. I'm going to say within three or four weeks and he was like, Brampton has a recruiting going on. They're hiring. You should put in. Darn right. I will. And I put in and within four months I was hired in Brampton. Like, And as I said in my little write-up to you, I hate talking about getting hired like that because I know guys try for a long time. They spend a lot of money. I've heard guys trying for 10 years to get on. And from the day I was like, I want to be a firefighter to me being hired in Brampton was like four months. Like it was, it was an incredible quick journey. I don't I don't like talking about it because it just it upsets some guys. <laughs> yeah, we but. all have our
0: path. I mean, it took me four years and there's guys that get on, it took them a year. It's everyone has their path and once you get on, it all drops away, regardless of how long it was and how much money it, it took, it's it's all worth it. Right. And two things from that time, the first thing is if Brent Vasey doesn't stand out as a mentor and a guide and someone to admire and aspire to, if he doesn't show you what firefighting is actually all about, then I don't know who can what a guy to be able to interact with so early on and and sort of knowingly on his part or not show you what it can be.
2: 100%. And we just recently did his retirement from Brampton. And as the assistant coordinator of the honor guard now in Brampton, I was tasked to give a little speech or a congratulations to him or whatever. And I had it all planned out. And part of it was basically thanking him for setting me on the path. But it was just too emotional that day, and I couldn't. And I'm getting emotional now about it. But I'm I'm going to say without Brent, I would not be a firefighter.
0: That's amazing. I also want to touch back on it. It's just fascinating to me that you came into your community, your new community, and you thought, I need to be part of something to be part of my community. And you went and found, sought out volunteer opportunities with that as your motive and intent. And I just find it interesting now not to say that people that apply to fire now haven't had that similar experience but this ties into what you're saying about how difficult it is to get on to that I'm sure I think it's safe to say it's common for people to say well I need volunteer experience to get what I want so I will join this thing and maybe they don't have the same gratitude or investment I just think the intent is different and that that intent changes things
2: yes I will agree that I think a lot of guys girls are joining the volunteers because it is the next step or it's the next checkbox you need. And for me, like I had no thought of being a firefighter. I was in corrections and it was to become part of the community. And I knew nothing, like I knew nothing about firefighting, absolutely nothing, but it was the whole volunteering. It was outside my comfort zone. That is something that I always tried to, challenge myself on just step outside a little bit and if you like it great and if not then you can step back but you're not going to grow if you don't step outside so that's you know I saw the sign and I'm like volunteering we're going to help the community okay let's go and see what it's all about and I don't want to say everyone that's becoming a volunteer is doing it to get a job I want to say back then as well there was more of a thought to give to the community there are still a lot of volunteer firefighters that they're there for their community and they want to give to their community. So don't get me wrong on that. Like,
0: No, don't get me wrong either. What I was tying you back to was even you mentioned joining the Lions Club. Like I'm thinking just volunteering in general, not volunteer firefighters, just the intent of joining something to volunteer and you use the word to help out, right? Like having that intent of volunteering to help other people as opposed to volunteering to get something that you want is different.
2: Yeah, and that is definitely, that's from my parents, 100%, that mentality. And I'm really hoping, and I think I have passed it on to both my sons. But I'm going to say that was mainly from my dad, basically volunteering at the church. He certainly didn't get paid for all the work to run the church, being on the board of directors. He was a volunteer St. John's ambulance guy. I remember going with him to go-kart races where he would be on standby as a St. John's Ambulance guy. And I remember having a conversation with him one time. I'm like, are you getting paid for this? Like, why are we here? And he's like, because if I wasn't here, this wouldn't be happening. So these kids wouldn't be racing their go-karts. So like to make things happen, people have to give back. And it was a two-part for me because we moved into a new community. It's like, I want to become part of the community. But at the same time, for this community to function, they need people to do these things. The Lions Club or hockey coaches or volunteer firefighters or whatever. And it was just, it, I was seeking out something. I just happenstanced onto the volunteer firefighter based on that sign. That, that sign is I, I, the sign, that's all I could say is the sign.
0: Mm-hmm. The sign you are waiting for.
2: <laughs> yeah. Literally on the side of the road that said, come in and be a volunteer firefighter. <laughs> what
0: was your recruit experience like?
2: Absolutely amazing. We had Doug Bergen, who was a Toronto firefighter, senior Toronto firefighter. He was the training officer in Flamborough and I enjoyed every aspect, everything about recruit. I'm assuming you're talking recruit of Flamborough, not of Brampton. Yeah. Give me both. Yeah. Okay. So recruit of Flamborough was absolutely amazing. It was, we were doing stuff that I had never, ever done ever in my life. And it was absolutely amazing. Flamborough doesn't have their own fire tower. We would go to Cambridge fire, fire tower, We did old school stuff. Like we went and burned down a house for training. We went and burned down a barn for training. We did pumping evolutions at farms. It was absolutely incredible. And my recruit class, awesome people that I'm still friends with. Some of us have moved on from the volunteering. Others are still there, but it's just absolutely incredible. The one story, so we were up in Cambridge at the fire tower, and again, I'm not looking to get anyone in trouble or anything, but we are at the fire tower, and times were different back then. Maybe safety wasn't the highest aspect, but he was teaching us what I feel was real-life firefighting skills. and We were in the tower, in the bottom room, and he started a fire. This was one of the first times, and this evolution was about learning heat. And I think it's something that we are lacking currently, but I understand due to safety regulations and stuff, we can't do that anymore. But anyways, we are at the Cambridge Tower. He started the fire. The 25 of us, 30, I think 25, we're all in the same room, all standing. And he started the fire and he's explaining the thermal layers and the smoke. And so we're standing and then you have to go to kneeling because the heat's starting to bank down. Eventually we got to where we were laying on the floor because it was so hot in there. And we're all laying on the floor. He's laying on the floor and he's explaining what's happening. And we have to be aware of these situations and to look at the key points and understand when this starts happening and stuff like that. It was like real life training. Nothing was simulated or whatever. Eventually it got to the point where we military body crawled out of the room outside. The fire got so hot, the cement in that room, the ceiling kind of collapsed down. I'm going to say 10, 15 minutes after we'd been outside. And it was so real. And it, the learning lesson was so incredible. Again, times were different. I'm not looking to get anyone in trouble. It was incredible. My recruit in Flamborough was absolutely incredible. Recruit in Brampton, <laughs> a little bit different because I was a volunteer. These evolutions in training, I don't want to say I had been there, done that. But the other thing with recruit in Brampton was I'd already been hired for almost a year. The four of us, me and Chad and Daryl and Jill, had been hired. 10 months earlier, and we went to communications. And so when we finally got to a recruit class, we had our uniforms, we knew a lot of people, we knew the DCs, so it wasn't a typical, oh my God, I'm so excited to be here, recruit class. It was like, we're finally getting to go to the floor. So there was not a disappointment, but it's like, yeah, we just want to get through this to get to the floor, because we've already been here 10 months. And the other thing about that was, I was the oldest in the class, and we had some, by that time, I was 31 years old. I had two kids, I had a house. And so there was some, what I call kids, like we had 19 and 20 year olds in our recruit class and they had never had like a real job. This was their first job. There was some immaturity and it was funny that they started calling me dad in the class because some of their antics and stuff like that, I wouldn't tolerate I don't want to say I was melting out discipline, but I was definitely giving life advice and counseling and stuff like that. So they started calling me dad and it's all in jest and joking and stuff, but it was a different recruit class for me in Brampton. I think I had my true recruit class in Flamborough because I was young and everyone else was young and it's kind of the typical first job recruit class type deal, right? The recruit class in Brampton, again, we're going back a few years. There was some discipline which was great. I think it was needed. I think it's warranted. Things were scaled back a little bit as far as what we could do in, in the fire tower. And I completely understand that. And again, in these times, I completely understand why we do what we do in the fire tower as well. But So things were scaled back a little bit and it was good. I had a good time. We, as a class, we became close and we are still close. It was good.
0: And then how about your rookie years?
2: It wasn't a problem. It, it was just, it was completely different. I don't think I had the typical rookie year because by the time I hit the floor at station one, B shift, I'd been on Brampton Fire for over a year. So that was the other thing is when I was in communications, I was partnered with Kathy Haz, and it was just me and her. So The other three guys, they were on shifts where there was two or three other communications officers. So their experience in communications was a little different than mine because I was just partnered. It was just me and Kathy because Holly Den was off on maternity leave, I believe. But I was thrust into being like a full-time community. Like I was doing emergency calls. I was doing dispatching within a month of being up in communications where those other guys, they were just doing non-emergency calls and eventually getting to dispatching and stuff and so I got to know all the DCs really quickly so when I hit the floor my rookie years I'd already been on a year I got to station one there was two guys that had just got to the floor that were much younger than me they had just got to the station like two or three months before me and so it immediately felt like I was senior to them so there was never that rookie rookie feeling type deal like I had no problem going in and talking to the DCs because I'd talked to them for the last year, right? And obviously I understood the value of being a rookie and I think everyone needs to go through that. So yes, I took my turn of cleaning the washrooms and cleaning up the kitchen and doing the hall duties. And I think it was important, but the level of trust from the other members of the crew, I think were almost immediate because again, I'd been working with them through communications for almost a year. So like they knew who I was and I came in, I was married. I had two kids. I'd been on the job for a year. And then we had these two other guys, incredible firefighters, but they were younger and they had just been on for like two or three months. So it was a very, very interesting dynamic. I wouldn't change my first nine years at B-Shift 201 for anything though. It was absolutely incredible. And it just within the first... I'm going to say three months, I knew that I had found what I was looking for as far as a job and a job for life. It was, okay, I have found it. I know it was. The guys that we were like, immediately we we got to know each other's family. Like we did stuff together. Our families hung out. Like we became a family. Like it was, it was exactly what I was looking for and what I think the fire service needs to be
0: you mentioned kathy and her husband mike is up there with brent Vasey as one of our firefighters firefighter in that hall of fame and out of station one and a huge auto x expert i guess we can we can use the word expert
2: i'm going to say subject expert yes
0: subject matter expert yeah yes 100 percent. talk to me about interacting with mike station one had our department's first squad or a rescue as they're called in the States. So talk to me about X and then eventually how you got into the AutoX competitions.
2: So I certainly don't want to fawn over Mike, but I will a little bit. I will certainly agree. He is in the legendary Brampton firefighter status. He was a first class firefighter his whole career. He worked on A shift at 201. I was on B shift. So we were complete opposite. So we'd only see each other on the Monday mornings and the Thursday. There was twice that we'd see them, but, I quickly learned who he was and what he was about and working with Kathy for those 10 months, I certainly got an introduction to him as well. And I feel a little later on, we'll talk about the honor guard. And that was my introduction to the honor guard through Kathy, because Mike was the coordinator at the time. But as far as Auto X, I was involved in Auto X. Again, it was in Flamborough. Flamborough had an auto extrication competition team and It was run by Brent Vasey. His brother, Chris, was on the auto extrication team in Wasega. And those two towns would go to competitions kind of all across Ontario. I started learning more about the auto X. Different teams handled the competitions different. Flamborough was more about family time going to the competition with some learning component to it. And Flamborough always camped. They would find a campground near the competition and they would camp and they would bring their families and the families would hang out and then they would go to the competition during the day and they would run their pits and then they would come back and it it was like camping and stuff. And that's what drew me into the auto extrication competitions was the family aspect of it. And my family started traveling with the Flamborough auto extrication team. And it was the one time we were in Lively, which is just outside of Sudbury. They were holding a competition. And I was kind of like a spare, a sub or whatever. And one of the members got sick and they're like, Mark, you're in for this pit. I'm not sure how much you know about the auto extrication competition, but you have two pits. You have a a heavy pit and an unlimited pit where you can use whatever tool, hydraulics and everything. And then you have a limited pit where it's just hand tools and stuff. And before you come out to do your pit, you get sequestered and the team is by themselves sequestered while they set the pit up and then they come and get you and you come out. And I think it just clicked when I was in sequestering that first time with them and just how it was like playing sports again, being on that team, the joking, but seriousness and everything just before you go out onto the ice or just before you go out into the pit. And it was like, wow, this is, this is amazing. Like this is the same feeling I had being in the dressing room in hockey. It just evolved from there. So I started being more of a regular on the team. Eventually, Flamborough qualified. We actually traveled to Dallas for the international auto-extrication competition. We did really well down there. Our families came. It was just incredible. I get hired in Brampton. I work with Kathy Has, Her husband's Mike. He is like the auto-ex guy. I start asking questions. Do you have an auto-extrication team? Are you even considering that? Blah, blah, blah. So within two years of being on the floor at station one, me and another guy, we approached the chief and like, hey, we'd like to put an auto extrication team. The benefits are unbelievable. Like you see new techniques, you learn things, we can bring them back to the department. It would be incredible. And the chief at the time was like, yeah, if you guys think you can put it together and make it work, then I'll set a little bit of budget aside for you and you guys can see what you can do. And it went from there. And there were some roadblocks in the beginning. Obviously, outside of Mike, there were several members on the department that were like well who are these new kids like that are going to competitions and want to bring back new ideas and like new fangled tools and we know what we're doing here and so there were some roadblocks but those challenges i think we met because we actually got some of those members onto the team and took them to competitions and the attitude changed so quickly it's like oh my goodness there's actually value to this and you're actually bringing stuff back and it got to the point where tools were being added to the truck and techniques were being added. But those first couple of years were, were rough and it, I really questioned like why are we working so hard when no one really cares outside the six or seven of us on the team and we kind of get made fun of and stuff, but eventually there was buy-in and I look back and that's one of my biggest successes I think in Brampton and I look at some of the tools in the truck right now on all the squads and i'm like that's a direct result of the auto extrication team and people don't know it and i don't i certainly don't i don't need to be credited for it. it's just an internal gratitude to myself thinking i actually have made a difference here so to get back at talking about mike has those first couple years him being the auto x guy i did kind of like wow is he so knowledgeable and like he knows everything about auto X and everything like that. And auto X became a passion of mine. And I'm like, if someday I could become the Mike has, that would be absolutely unbelievable. Like I wasn't interested in the TR. I wasn't interested in the hazmat. It was the auto extrication. it's like, wow, if I could become Mike has one day, I've made it like, I'd like it'd be incredible. And that didn't pan out, but I still feel that internal gratitude when I see some of the tools on the truck. And I'm like, yeah, that's because of the auto extrication team. We saw that at a competition. We brought it back. We demoed it. The powers to be said, let's get that on the truck. And it's awesome.
0: Yeah, When you say it in a sentence, it sounds like it. And then you said there were some challenges, but you say it in a sentence, it sounds like, oh, it just happened. <laughs> but really what we just talked about is the fire service in a nutshell, right? That's the, okay, if you would just drop the defensiveness for a second and just open your mind and come and look at what I've seen For your own eyes, don't even have to hear it from me. If you just want to put in the same time to view this through an open lens, I think you'll have a similar experience and then perhaps we can move this forward. But it's really hard to do that.
2: It is. And after spending this year on my Sakama in training, it is unbelievably hard. And when I first joined the fire service, the saying, 200 years of tradition unimpeded by progress. (laughs) Right, yeah. I used to think that was, I was like, wow, that is the coolest saying in the world. I'm going to get that tattooed on my leg. Like, that's awesome. <laughs> right. I now think about that saying and go, that is terrible. No one should ever say that. That is that is horrendous saying, unimpeded by progress. Are you kidding me right now? Like, well,
0: let's go back to bucket brigades then. If we want tradition, let's go right back to the beginning and, and just, that's how we'll fight fires.
2: Exactly. And so I try to, with that saying, I try to equate it to, Not equipment and not how we do things, but the tradition of the fire family and how we have our honor and pride and stuff. And so that's why I'm like, that's maybe what I want that saying to mean, not tools and techniques and stuff, what we do.
0: Yeah, there's traditions that we should fight for and hold on to for dear life and never lose. And we could have a long discussion, maybe we will, about what we are losing And it scares me, but there are things that do need to change. And I think that constant, honest look at everything, pull it all apart, put it back together and the things that matter will stay and the things that need to change will change.
2: If I could just add a little caveat just recently there was a new tool that was proposed for the trucks and I was responsible for doing the trial. And this goes back to the auto X tools as well Is we had some members that almost refused to try the new tool. Like, no, this will never work. This is stupid. Why are we even looking at it? And after some convincing and pushing and stuff, they tried it and they're like, Oh my God, this is incredible. And I'm just like, yeah, this is what progress means that you have to try things And when you're trying them, then you can say yes or no to them. But you can't just say, I don't even want to look at it. I don't want to try it. And I just, I feel there is a little bit of stubbornness on the part of firefighters. And I think that's one of our good qualities, yet bad qualities is the stubbornness. And it sometimes gets in the way of progress.
0: Yeah, it's A piece of equipment or a skill. I've said it before. I, I try not to repeat myself as much as I can because <laughs> I'm going to be on all of these, but until you know it inside and out, until you've mastered it, until you've used it, you can't judge it.
2: 100%. And I look back in my early career of firefighting and I think I was one of those stubborn, hey, this is working. I like it, but I am so far from that now. I think we should be investigating. And I don't I certainly am not saying that as soon as a new technique comes out, okay, we should be doing that. I think it needs to be investigated. I think it needs to be vetted. And if it proves to be better or more successful, then we need to move to it. And fires and what we do is evolving and changing every day. And if we don't change along with it, we're going to be in trouble.
0: Let's just stay with this for a moment because there are so many aspects to our job now and so many tools at our disposal to do each of those jobs you mentioned just specifically for you for AutoX, like you you sunk your teeth into that. And really that's what all of us do, or hopefully all of us do, is that we're a jack of certain trades or Jack or Jill of certain trades. I don't want to put a gender to it, but you get what I'm saying that we we know those aspects of the job, but we're not the next level with them. We are fully capable at them, but we then we do have our subject matter experts. And we need those because there's way too much to know about all of the things. Do you feel that when these new skills, tactics, pieces of equipment come up, we don't need everybody to agree that this is the thing we need to do or what we need to use because not everybody has the capacity or the time or the bandwidth to know enough about that thing or the technique or the skill to make a fully educated decision. So where I'm getting to is that we should then trust and defer to the people that we believe in and we know have done the deep dive. And when they say this is where the direction we should take with this thing, we should believe in them and trust them and be happy that they've done that with that piece of equipment. And now the rest of us don't have to.
2: I'll say, I think for a firefighter, the saying goes, jack of all trades, master of none. But I think for a firefighter, I will agree with you. You should be a jack of all trades, master of one. And every firefighter should become a master of not necessarily a discipline, but one aspect that you are like, that's your thing. You can do everything really well, but become passionate about something and become deeply involved in that. And I will agree as well that those people in that subject matter, we need to trust because they have done the deep dive. They have done the research. They have done the education portion of it, that we need to start trusting what they bring. Unfortunately, It can't just be a single voice when we go to a new technique or new tool or something. We have 550 members, so we don't just need one person saying, this is the way to do it. If we had a group, then the rest of us, yes, we need to trust in them. They have done the work and the research and the education.
0: Because usually it is more than one person, right? You do have, I guess my thought would be, well, then how many people? Do you need to have 50 people that say this? you need to have 15 people that say this? Does it need to be a 100 of us? At what point are we willing to say, I trust these people and the work they've done? Let's go in this direction.
2: I'm going to say it this way, that I think there has been issues. I don't know if it's firefighters need proof or whatever, but it seems to me that sometimes when we get new tools or techniques or whatever, it comes with because I said so. And I think firefighters want to dive in deeper. And if there was an explanation, I, the method of delivery, there we go. Why don't we go with method of delivery? If it was refined and more educated to the masses, I think there'd be a better buy-in as opposed to, I say that's a better tool. That's a better technique. Because firefighters are inquisitive and I think they question everything. So if you had backup to it, like here's a new tool, this is why we should go to it this is why it's better. That's where we need to get to. Is it happening? Yeah, it's happening. Could it be more intense? Yes, it could.
0: Have you brought forward something on a silver platter in the way it should be brought forward and still receive pushback?
2: With the new tool just recently that there was some pushback, but I felt that I did due diligence with education and research and I passed that on. And there's always going to be firefighters pushback no matter what is said or done and even if it's clear as day that it's a better tool technique or whatever there's always going to be pushback that's another quality of a firefighter i think is lots of times they don't like being told lots of times with the new tool that i was just recently doing you have to gauge your audience and you let them think they're making the decision like you're not telling them they're discovering it themselves and it's like, Hey, this is really good. It's like, really? You think it's really good? Oh, okay. It must be really good. Right? Like it's, it's like every, everyone yeah. wants to have, have their say. And I, I think there's pushback when it's kind of just bomb dropped on them and like, okay, this is what we're doing. It's like, well, why? Wh- what's, where's the proof? What's the, what's the backup? Again, as I said, no matter what you do, there's always going to be someone that says, no, that's stupid. Or I, I don't like doing that or I'm not going to do that.
0: Do you think at some point where, leadership comes in, take a discipline, you could take AutoX, you could take Tech Rescue, you could take a Hazmat. Let's just pick one. At some point, too many cooks in the kitchen, nothing's ever going to get cooked and whatever does get cooked is going to taste awful. It might not even be edible. Do you think there's benefit at some point where a leader, a PC, whatever chief level they have in said department says, this is what we're doing. This has been talked about enough and we're moving forward.
2: I was just going to mention that. I like That's where I was going was we are always going to have personnel or members that push back. But once the demonstrated need is shown, we do need the leadership to say, this is what's happening. And if it doesn't happen, there will be discipline. I have always been a big discipline guy. It's solidified during corrections. I am huge about discipline. And I think the leadership, once it is determined, however we determine it, through a committee, through a group, through whatever, but it's determined, this is a new tool, this is a new technique, this is what Brampton Fire is going to do. There needs to be the leadership that falls in behind it to the ones that are like, well, I'm not doing that. Well, no, you are, or there's going to be discipline. And that's one of the things that we are losing in not only the fire service, but in society as well, is the discipline. The
0: accountability portion.
2: Yeah. Everyone is, I don't want to say slightly afraid, but there is that awkwardness of what's going to happen to me if I discipline or push this. I have some very strong views on discipline and it wouldn't fly in today's society. Right. We need to be held accountable. We. <laughs> We do a very dangerous, dirty job and we need to be held accountable or someone's going to get hurt or killed. And I would like to get back to some discipline.
0: Let's stay with Mike Haas and Kathy Haas for a moment. They've obviously been an important arc through your story. You mentioned the Honor Guard. Walk me into how that became a part of your career and your life.
2: Working with Kathy Haas, her husband Mike was the coordinator of the Honor Guard. I knew nothing of Honor Guards. There was no Honor Guard at the Corrections back then. Obviously, we had no Honor Guard at the Volunteer Department. Working nights with Kathy, lots of time to talk. I got to know her. I got to know her family. I got to know Mike without even meeting him and what he did and everything like that. And obviously, the Honor Guard came up. And it was just one of those intriguing things is, here's this organization, the Honor Guard, and this is what they do. And like they go to funerals and they support the family and they support other members and It was, again, just an inherent need within myself to like, well, this is how I want to be involved. This is something that I feel to give back and to be involved in Brampton Fire. And it it just clicked. I started talking to Mike directly about it. And within the first four months on the department, I was, I want to join the Honor Guard. I like, I want to be the Honor Guard. And Mike's like you can come to practices and you need to focus on communications right now. And we'd love to have you. And as soon as you come to the floor and what you get a year on. And as soon as I hit the floor, I was at station one, Mike's at station one. We talked on changeover on the Monday morning and immediately I'm like, yeah, I want to be in. And immediately he's like, we want people like you to come. And the other thing too was, this is going to sound funny, but with my brief military experience, I actually enjoyed marching. Marching was a big part of basic training. And I thought it was hilarious seeing these people in basic training that couldn't march. Cause I'm like, it's basically just walking people. Like what, why are you having a problem? Why are you having a problem with this? (laughs) Also with marching comes the bagpipes and I love the bagpipes and I just, I love the whole pomp and ceremony and everything like that. And and so I joined the honor guard and it was four months after I joined that unfortunately the Barry firefighter, the fatality in Barry and the large L O D D funeral that was held in Newmarket for him. And that was my first exposure. So I had been on the honor guard. I had gone to practices, but we had never done a function. And so that was the first one I went to and the sheer size of it, and everybody was there for the family and each other. I was like, oh my God, this is me. This is what I want to do right here. It's incredible. It was just, again, it tied everything back to family and commitment and being together. And it was, sounds terrible, but it was awesome. At the same time, it was a funeral, but it was just awesome to see, overwhelming, but awesome to see, how everyone came together for one cause type deal.
0: Those moments that I've had in my career that were similar at these events, I really feel if it doesn't take your breath away, if it doesn't give you a moment of awe, make you weak in the knees, if it doesn't stir something inside of you, then it's probably not the job for you. Those moments touch that part deep in you. That is the reason why you're in this.
2: I fully agree. And I think that's where we should be talking about 200 years of tradition, unimpeated by progress, is when it comes to these aspects. This is why we are firefighters. The honor and the pride and the tradition builds us to be able to go out and help the community. And we are starting to lose that because it's starting to become just a job. Here's your paycheck. These are your work hours. Thanks for coming in. And people go home. That's what bothers me the most about the direction of the fire service. And because I'm so involved as assistant coordinator now, I've almost fulfilled my dream of becoming Mike Haz, the assistant coordinator. I go to these events all the time and I'm still stirred and moved and so proud to represent Brampton at them that I say to any new recruit or any new firefighter, if you want to know what being a firefighter is, you need to go to Colorado Springs. Every firefighter needs to make their way sometime in their career to Colorado Springs. And the National LODD Memorial, they do. It is the epitome of who we are and what we do.
0: You also mentioned going to Buffalo was a distinct moment for you.
2: So Buffalo was in 2006, I believe we'll go back to Brent Vasey. Brent Vasey was on the honor guard. That helped me as well to push forward to the honor guard. I was like, if Brent Vasey's on the honor guard, it must be good. So the Buffalo funeral was the firefighter. It was a row house. It had collapsed. He was trapped in the collapse and he had been in coma, in a coma for over 10 years. And he came out of the coma and then eventually died six months later. It's very tragic. I wasn't on when the collapse had happened. So I didn't know about the collapse, I just thought it was another funeral until I started researching. It's like, oh my goodness, this was 10 years ago, blah, blah, blah. So anyways, Brampton fire went down, but Flamborough firefighters also were there. And we kind of, because Brent was a major player at the volunteers and was in the honor guard, Flamborough and Brampton were kind of together. And it was the worst day. It was a typical Buffalo late November day, cold, blowing snow, I remember standing on the street waiting to salute, and there were shoulder flashes from across North America. This incident had happened 10 years ago. Yes, the firefighter had just died, but this incident had happened 10 years ago. And it was just overwhelming to me to think that all these people had come on this terrible day to remember something that had happened 10 years ago. But to be here today, it was like, okay. I get this. I get why we do what we do as far as Arnegard goes. It was one of those funeral salutes that when you're on the line, you're supposed to be looking forward to stuff. But I caught myself looking up and down the line going, holy cow. Like this is, this is truly why we do this right here. And at that point, it was like, I want to be more involved. I, I want to be more involved. I'm going to do whatever I can because this, again, it sounds bad, but this is awesome. This, is, this represents to me what the fire service is.
0: In how we should honor each other.
2: How we should honor each other, but how we stick together and be a family. And, oh, look, now you got me. You got me with it.
0: Yes. Dude, I'm getting goosebumps (laughs) too. You're not the only one. I just had a tear. (laughs) And to the seriousness of the job too, because you're going to these events all the time, you have more perspective on this. But I posted the other day, it's always happening to someone somewhere else until it's happening to you.
2: Correct. 100%. I don't want to say members don't take our job serious. But I think some members don't take our job serious. But I feel it has given me the perspective that every time I step onto the truck to go to a call, I realize what I'm going to. And it comes from being at these funerals and stuff. This is a serious job. It's a dangerous job, and we need to treat it as such.
0: Why can't we get the message across? What's the block?
2: The block is, I think it's a society thing that... We have gone soft as far as what we can bring forward to the new people. I know when I started 21 years ago, what was said to me and what was shown to me would never fly today. People would be, oh, well, you're going to send them off on stress leave and you're going to upset them by saying that. And our job is about reality and reality needs to be said to them. And just unfortunately, society is saying, oh, no, you can't do that. You might hurt their feelings or you might you might scare them or whatever. And I'm a big proponent. Listen, you need to be scared in the hall. You don't need to be scared at your first fire or your first whatever. You need to be scared in the hall and understand what's happening. And it's just an older school way of thinking. And
0: you mean have the perspective that makes you scared of what could potentially happen while you're on calls before you leave the station, that's what you're saying, not be scared of the hall or scared at the hall.
2: No, 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 not scared of the hall, but to actually, and scared is, you certainly don't want a scared firefighter, but to have the understanding of what you're going out to face.
0: Aware might be a better. Aware.
2: Uh, before you get on that truck and arrive at the call and go, oh my God, this is pretty serious. You need to have that awareness or understand that at the hall from the senior guys telling you and showing you what can happen and stuff. And, It should almost be mandatory to have new people. You have to go to funerals. You have to come and see what can happen.
0: Or you have to read NIOSH reports or you have to watch videos. We have access to everything now of actual calls and we'll show you the calls and we'll talk about it. We'll read the NIOSH report. This needs to be hammered home.
2: One of the things that we got in recruit class was it was basically a video of medical calls that were really bad and We were told beforehand, this is potentially what you're going to see. Like, you need to prepare yourself. This is what you're going to see. And so that's what I'm saying is, the first time you see a dead body should not be at your first dead body call. doesn't matter how prepared you are. It is going to be shocking everything. But we need to give them the education. And So, like, for fires and the dangerousness of the job, it shouldn't be discovered at your first call. It needs to happen way beforehand. And, yes... We have access to media to show them and educate them and the NIOSH reports and this is what happened and this is what can happen. And it's about reality because our job is about reality. We can't get to calls and go, oh, this is too much for me. I I don't want to do this. That's not an option. It's Once you get on the truck, that call is happening to you whether you like it or not.
0: And I think we would both agree there's a way to go about doing that and not going down the slippery slope of literally pouring on the trauma to people just for the sake of pouring on the trauma. That's not what we're that's not what we're talking about.
2: So that was the days of old of the shock and awe trauma and certainly not. We have come a long way from that. There needs to be education and helping them through that. But I still think we need a component of that.
0: There's a pendulum settling in in the middle somewhere there of how to go about doing this in a respectful, but it's in a protective way for them, for them to realize it ahead of time.
2: I just think is early on in your career, I don't know, in recruit class would be a good time for people to realize I can't do this as opposed to a year later and you go to that first call and it's like, I can't do this. And then, then what? And again, I'm not a proponent of the shock and awe. That's what happened with us 21 years ago. And I'm not a proponent of that, obviously, because I know the potential damage it can do. But there needs to be needs to come back a little bit that we are preparing these people for reality.
0: And the worst would be realizing I can't do this, but I can't leave because it's too good.
2: That's a twofold because those people are eventually going to be looked upon to be the leaders the captains, the DCs, and I worry about the future and where we're going to be at and what a firefighter is going to look like in 20 years from now.
0: So this is a great segue. You worry about the future and what a firefighter is going to look 10, 20 years from now. So you've made the decision to take us a comment into training, into the training division, even though now the training world and the fire service is way different than what you came from. How are you approaching it? How are you inserting yourself and in what you feel you want to impart in this difficult world now that we're in?
2: My big thing is you have two options. You can complain about change or you can be the change. I think that's another quality of a firefighter is the ability to complain about change. I have made a priority in my career now that I want to be the change. And I see some deficiencies or things that need to be improved. And I felt I owed it to me and Brampton to give back whatever I can to make sure that those firefighters 20 years from now are what I think they can be or they should be and I've gone outside my comfort zone but I think it's important you can complain about change or you can be the change and like lots of guys sit in the hall and oh the recruit class and the recruit program is so bad and the captain program is so bad and well then let's do something about it and I took it upon myself as like okay I'm gonna try to do something about it and the way to do that is to get to training and start working with the people that actually can affect change. And that's my hope. I have seven years left in my career. If I can make a change for the better, then I'll look back and go, I had a great career.
0: And you're at peace knowing that even if nothing changes, that at least you tried.
2: 100%. So this is what I think motivated me the most was I don't want to retire. And then 10 years from now, I hear of a fatality in Brampton. And then I think I might have been able to done something about that. Even though I'm I'm long retired or whatever, that firefighter would have started or perhaps started during my last few years. And if I can get into training, because I feel that's where most change comes from. Yeah, you can direct some change from the from the floor and from a hall and stuff, but I think the most impact is in the training division that I can sleep at night saying I did everything that I possibly could, or I tried to do everything I possibly could to make things better. Part of my reason for taking this a comment and now wanting to be in there full time is I feel I have some wisdom and knowledge to impart on new firefighters, the same as Mike Has did, the same as Brett Vasey. And, and don't get me wrong, I am not putting myself in those categories. Like, I am not Brett Vasey. I am not Mike Haz.
0: Well, you don't get to make that decision. We get to make that decision. And if I say you are, then that's how I feel. So we'll just leave it at that. But yeah, your, your humility is appreciated, but you don't really get to make that call. I,
2: I just, I certainly wouldn't want people listening to think, wow, he's he's pretty arrogant. And if he thinks he's uh, Mike Haz or Brett Macy, but I feel that I'm at a level now. And it's interesting. I break my career down kind of into three parts. And the first part is the longest, the first nine years at station one. And then there was kind of the middle part where you're not a new guy and you're not really a senior guy. You're kind of just, you're in the middle. And it's the last three or four years that I'm like, wow, wait a minute. I'm a senior guy. I'm a senior firefighter now in the Brampton Fire Department. People are actually turning and looking at me and going, what would he do? And how would he do this? And there was a self-realization is like, I actually have a little bit of I don't want to say power, but a little bit of influence here because of
0: responsibility.
2: Responsibility is a great word. Yes, it is. Responsibility is a great word. How can I maximize that responsibility? Like on a shift, the DCs would always be like, you know, Mark, there's a, a recruit class coming out. We want to send a new guy to your hall, blah, blah, blah. I've had a new guy for the, like the last seven years. I'm impacting that new guy. And then I see that junior or new guy move on. And it's like, I actually had a part of what he's become. And so then I started thinking, how do I maximize the responsibility of that? If I'm in training, there's a whole recruit club. There's 30 guys there or 30 people there that I can impart on them what a senior firefighter in Brampton knows and does. And it just, I like the word that you use, responsibility. And it was impart change or try to be the change and to impart onto our junior people what it means to be a Brampton firefighter and how to be a Brampton firefighter.
0: This is where one of the 50 rules for senior firefighters came from of the expectations actually increase as you're on the job, not decrease.
2: The good thing about it too, and I was never self-aware, like I just I was kind of just going through life, but in the last few years I see the growth of myself. And I'm like, wow, I like I am growing and to take on this type of challenge or whatever, it's like I'm growing as a person and as a result, I've become a better husband. I've become a better father. I've become a better community member because of this growth and stuff. And it's just, if 53-year-old Mark talked to 18-year-old Mark, they wouldn't know each other at all.
0: We should all be able to look back and say that.
2: I think we all should, but I don't think we all can.
0: (laughs) It's funny how you and I are interconnected in a way, right? We had the privilege to work together for a little while, open up Station 12 there, and then I left to actually go into training and then came out, and now you're there. So it's just funny how we're sort of in the same wheelhouse.
2: Well, we worked together at Station 12 when it first opened. Those were good times. I really value the time that we had together. I saw a different aspect. It was awesome, Scott. I really enjoyed it. Right at the end of 2012 is, I believe, is when I took I took a comment back into training back then because I thought at that point, I was ready to go in and kind of have that, what I feel now. But after six months, it's like, I'm not ready. I'm not that person yet. And I needed to come back and become more of what I am today. And I and I realized that. And I like I asked, I said, I need to go back to the floor because I'm not who I want to be in here just yet. And it was interesting when I came back, that's when you left to go to training. And there was some sadness or there was, it felt like kind of, we lost a part of 12 that you that you left and but at the same time you were just that many years ahead of me as far as service that you were starting to have the feelings that i was having 4 or 5 years ago you know what i mean like
0: exactly yeah yeah and i think that was hard to impart and it was sad for me to go but i had the same urge as you were having you know you had 5 years ago
2: right yeah and like you say we're very interconnected that way and i certainly appreciate you going to training and driving whatever changes could be made and we need more of that we need in my opinion we need more of the 15 to 20 year guy going into training and imparting and helping with change but it's still imparting the Brampton ways and stuff like that and you kind of led the way for me so I appreciate that
0: that's very cool no that time meant a lot to me as well
2: and also if I could add it's the first time I ever had vegetarian chili and it was amazing
0: (laughs) dude I made it I, I made it last night for I our still crew. Talk it's about still it going everybody. on.
2: When they're like, oh, let's make chili," and I'm like, "Have you ever had Scott Hewlett's vegetarian chili? Because it is amazing. It was. It, and and trust me, <laughs> on your days off or whatever, me and Chad or me and Dave, we try to replicate it. Not even close. We could, like, we watched you make it, and we're like, "How hard can chili be to make?" But
0: and we, Chad's like, "How do you how do you make the rice? We can't get the rice right. <laughs> exactly.
2: It, it was never the same. But I literally, I still tell people, if you have a chance." Uh-huh. You need to have Scott Hewlett's vegetarian chili. It's amazing.
0: <laughs> amazing. I've wanted to enter like a firefighter chili cook-off and not mention that it's fully vegan and just like make it and have someone eat it and, and then win or do really well and be like, you I know have that's told vegan,
2: that you would win. <laughs> chili cook-offs with that. They're Like, no way. There's no meat in that. I go, trust oh, me, he amazing. Would win. It was so good, so good. Amazing.
0: Okay, well, I, I gotta, I gotta <laughs> do it. This is the push. This is yeah. the universe message. So we'll try it. Hopefully they don't (laughs) listen to this before I I enter. Yeah. Have you faced any physical or mental health challenges in your life? And let me know how you manage them, how you overcame them, how you've grown from them.
2: Well, I think you're very familiar with my physical challenge. So I should caution you. I I might get emotional. I try. It's okay. This is what this is for. I try not to be because it's important. I think. Yet sometimes it's, I think it's important to get emotional about it as well. Anyways. Sure it is.
0: So let's just let it be what it is.
2: Okay. (laughs) This
0: is the space for it.
2: So in September of 2021, I was diagnosed with prostate cancer. For anybody that has been diagnosed with cancer, they'll know exactly what I mean when I say I was blindsided. I was hit by a two by four across the face. I joked with my doctor when the appointment was made for me to come into the office he said about, you need to bring someone with you because you're not going to hear me. And I was like, whatever, I've, I've faced adversity. I'm a firefighter. I've seen and done things that regular people don't. I'm okay. And he was right after he said, you have cancer. I don't remember another word after that.
0: Kevin said the same thing.
2: I just recently had a conversation with Kevin Tripp and it was very emotional between the two of us. And It was good though. I think sometimes bleeding the emotion out of you is very healthy. And you need it now and then. And that is something as well that I've grown. I'm going to be all over here, Scott. Uh, My mind is now racing. But I used to, in my jail days, when I was in corrections, I was called stoic. They would always reference me as stoic. And I used to take that as a badge of honor and like, darn right, I'm stoic. But I've recently come to think that stoic is not a compliment. Now I vet my emotions. I let them out. And I think I've grown as a person because of that. And I don't actually like being called stoic anymore. It's interesting because I did, I wore it as a badge of honor at the jail and early on in my firefighting career. And and now I, I don't want to be known as stoic because I want to have those type of conversations that I had with Kevin, where we were both very emotional. We're bleeding the emotion out of us. I think it's healthy driving it deep down inside and not showing it is not healthy. It causes issues and stuff like that. And, As I've got older, I openly cry at things that upset me. That's not something that would ever happen in the past. So diagnosed with cancer, the second meeting, he told me we came home very upset, whatever. We had to go back. We discussed the options. He told me, you know, option one, don't do anything. You probably won't see retirement. How can that even be an option? I don't even understand how that's an option. He's like, well, it is an option. It's not one I recommend, but it is an option. Surgery and radiation, there's downfalls to each one of them. I selected surgery because that's the option that would give me the possible longest extension of life and quality of life and and stuff like that and the side effects. So I had the surgery. Surgery went well. Recovery the first week, what did not go well. I had a major incident the first day home. Two days later, I fell into a place that I've never been in my life before. It was dark. It was deep. It was depressing. It was bad. Shocking. Uh, yeah, it was it was bad. And I didn't know who to turn to. I was afraid to turn to anyone. I think it was because I didn't want to burden anyone. But
0: uh, We're always the one that take on the burden, right? And we have a hard time of allowing other people to help us.
2: Yeah. We are the helpers. Like we help people, and we don't always seek out the help. I knew I had to because I couldn't continue. Like it was, it was getting. I want to say worse by the hour. Diane didn't know what to do with me. She had never seen me like this in the twenty-seven years we've been together. It was concerning. I reached back, way back in my uh, life. To okay, give me a second.
0: Let me say this while you're just taking a moment, and maybe it's a good teaching point for other people, like this is where people are going to benefit from this, that if we don't allow other people to care for us or love us or help us, we're actually stealing something from those people. We're taking something from them, the opportunity to care and love us and hold us up and support us and help us heal right? That's an experience for them. That's that that good feeling that we have when we do it for others and when we don't allow other people to do it for us. We're taking that from them. So even from a selfish standpoint, if we can allow other people to help us because we want to allow them to do that for us, that's a good way to get ourselves there. Like learning how to take a compliment. If I dismiss your compliment, I'm really saying what you're saying to me isn't true. You're lying. It's of no value.
2: Correct. And that is a great way of saying it, As it's something that I am still learning. And something that I'm trying harder to do is to take a compliment and actually value that compliment that you don't need to compliment me if you don't actually mean it. A compliment is not just empty words to make someone feel good. It's a true self-reflection of what the person sees in you. And I was pushing Diana away. It just made things worse. And when you push people away, it gets darker and deeper, and it just you fall you fall deeper. And as I was saying. I reached back to a safe place, I guess, in my at the church, and I thought I was through it. I reached out to uh, chaplain Jamie, and it was absolutely incredible. And he set me on a path. And within two or three days of talking with him and working with him, and him giving me some tools and stuff, I was fully back on. All right, let's go. We're beating this. We're going to get through this. I'm going to be better. And I walked away from where I was. I give him all the credit in the world.
0: And to you as well for recognizing what you needed to do. Like you took the step from that realization from that moment you made the effort. So you have an equal part in that relationship. Let's just stay with Jamie for a second because he is the chaplain of our department. So if people don't realize that that's not just a chaplain that you know in your life. He's the chaplain of our department. And speaking of honor guard and funerals, and there was a really dark six years that we went through, I would say, where we were at a lot of funerals together. And I think that was a real watershed moment for everybody, at least for everybody that was there. I mean, there's a lot of people on now that weren't there, but to say we owe him a debt is not even close to explaining it of how good he's been to our department.
2: So I'll say this about Chaplain Jamie. He is an incredible man and the value he brings to our department is so undervalued or underrecognized, misunderstood. He is a rock during times of uncertainty. And honestly, he is an incredible man. And I got to know him over that period of 6 years that we were talking about and being with the honor guard and then the assistant coordinator, we work closer with planning and organizing and stuff, and Jamie being involved in all that. And he is absolutely incredible. And to anyone on the department that doesn't know him or doesn't realize what he brings to the department, you're doing yourself a disservice. You need to find out about Chaplain Jamie. And it's incredible. And I can't say enough about him and what he is and what he represents and just everything. Incredible man. Absolutely incredible man. And I'm going to say this. It's part of my growth as well, that I am recognizing the value and all that years ago. I I probably wouldn't too self-absorbed or whatever the words may be, but I am, I am definitely recognizing what he is like for me. I didn't know where else to turn. And I reached out to him and there was no, like, I'm going to say I hadn't spoken to him in two years, maybe. And it was immediate familiarity, the way he talked with me, what we talked about, like, that's what amazes me as well. Is like he remembered like during those six years, the dark years, where we had a lot of issues and funerals and stuff. Like we talked about family, and he like he knows about my family, and I know about his. And and when I finally phoned him in those that times, my troubled times, like it was immediate. It's like, oh yeah, Mark, how, how's the family, and how's the boys, and it's just like, wow, like. Who are you, type deal, right? And, and yeah, it's like, it's,
0: I use the term almost like an enigma. Like I look at him thinking, how? Yeah. Or you think that you're a good, well rounded person. And then you meet Jamie and you're like, uh, no, I'm not really. I'm not really a good person.
2: Well, yeah. Like there's, I don't know. <laughs> not that you
0: need to compare yourself to other people, but you get what I'm saying. You know what I'm saying.
2: I've met a lot of people in the fire department in Brampton and I've talked to them and I've learned about their families and stuff. But I could not recall, like, do you have two kids or are you even married or whatever? And like, he just pulls it out. And I'm like, and I have a feeling you know that about everybody in this department. Like, I just, it, he is, he's, he's an incredible man. I can't, I can't say enough about him. And he is the one that reached down into my hole and pulled me out. And it, and it just, it was incredible.
0: Once you cracked that open, that ability to reach out and seek help did that manifest even greater? Were you then able to reach out to other people and expand and bring in the love and support that you needed to get through this?
2: 100%. He turned the train around and he set it in motion. And I honestly believe that after that things started picking up steam and we started going down the track and I was more open to others wanting to help and doing things and stuff like that where before i was like pushing everyone away and like this is my problem and i've got it and and i don't mean just like for my wife diane but like for my mom or my brothers and sisters or my close friends or whatever no no you don't need to burden yourself with this i got it but talking with jamie and him helping me and giving me the tools and stuff it's like no i i I started relying on it. And I think that's what got me to where I am now being very positive about the whole cancer thing and the recovery and my relationships and just everything. I don't want to say it's all because of one man, but like that phone call I had with him was, it could have been a life changer.
0: You grew up super active in sports. This has been a keystone for your life. Now that you've been through this, how are you approaching fitness and health at this point? And how has it evolved since that experience?
2: I took it for granted and it was just always there for me. And now I realize you have to work at it and you have to work at it all the time. And I am now not just haphazard about it. I'm now consciously. And I think that's a big difference that you're not guaranteed your health. And if you don't work on it, you're not going to have it. And Having the cancer, I don't want to say, has changed my life and outlook and perspective, but it has made me realize what's important and what's not. And your health is, you know, not just physical, but your mental as well. And it just, it, I guess, it has, it has, it, it's changed my life. And it goes back to another reason of being, or the desire to be in the training division and maximize the effort of imparting what I feel is now some wisdom about life onto junior people that we are all that when we say, we think we're invincible and oh, this will never happen to us. Well, guess what? It happened to me and it'll happen to you. So take care. The open letter I wrote to the membership was my desire that if I can help one person not have to deal with this, then whatever, I'll put myself out there. I'll expose myself I'll embarrass myself, whatever. I don't care. If it helps one person, then I've done something, right?
0: In our little preamble before we started recording, I asked you about, because I've had the experience as well, like now you're on straight days, you're in your bed every night, you're sleeping. Tell me what your perspective is on sleep, how you viewed it before, how you treated it as an aspect of your life, and and how you see it
2: now. So there was a long-standing 30-year joke in my family and in my wife's family 10 years from corrections and 20 years in the fire department that Mark doesn't need sleep I would come home from night shift and be up for all day Thanksgiving and then go back to night shift and then come home and do the other side of the family's Thanksgiving and it was always like oh Mark doesn't need to sleep he's fine and stuff and I literally thought it wasn't affecting me I'm like well I have no problem doing this and it's not affecting me and so the last year is the first time in 30 years that I have been on straight days. And I will say within the first month, I realized the damage or trauma I had done to my physical and mental health with all that shift work because the things changed eating my temperament my interaction with my kids, interaction with friends, what I thought about, how I behaved, everything changed. And for me, I'm going to say all the better. And it's sleep is so underrated and people think they can just keep pushing themselves. But I just, it I now realize how important sleep is.
0: So for everyone that can't just make the switch to straight days because we do what we do, thinking back on how you manage the shift work, and sleep before. What things could you pass on to people now that are in it how they can manage their sleep better It's still be on shift.
2: My big thing is don't push yourself cuz what you're doing now I believe has a direct correlation to what your health will be in the future. You're 25. Yeah, you can work nights, push yourself through the day doing a part-time job, going back to nights. Do that two or three times, and you're like, "Yeah, I can get through that." I believe there's a direct correlation between that And what your health is going to be in 50s, 60s, and 70s, and you need to take that time and get that sleep. It is from going to straight days and seeing that I'm a regular bedtime, getting regular sleep. I'm getting the eight hours. Like it just the research and the documentation about how important sleep is is true. It's not. It's not. And just because you can push yourself through it doesn't mean you're not doing harm to yourself. It's the same as diet. What you're doing now and putting in your body is going to affect you later. Yes, you can do all that stuff right now and you think it's not having an effect and it really isn't, but it is later on. And that's something that I would want to see incorporated into junior people or recruits coming in, the importance and the teaching of regular sleep, regular exercise, healthy diet, I want to call them all soft skills. I don't know what the right word is, but it's all soft skills that the old salty firefighter doesn't think they needs to be taught. And that has changed in me as well, that I have become to that side of thinking that these soft skills all need to be taught and reinforced and to make better firefighters have a healthier, longer life.
0: Yeah, you can care about and take care of all these aspects And even you speaking about bleeding out the emotions, allowing the emotions to express themselves, being aware of them, allowing them to come up when they need to, whenever they do, and still be a hard-charging, aggressive firefighter. The two can exist simultaneously. If anything, maybe you're more of an effective firefighter because you address all these aspects of yourself and not denying parts of yourself.
2: 100%. And my wife teases me a little bit now and then, but we had a training officer... I'm going to say 10 years ago, 15 years ago, before it was popular or deemed appropriate or whatever, that was trying to bring in meditation for the recruits. And I feel he was ridiculed. I feel he's made fun of, what's he doing, blah, blah, blah. This time around, there is talk of introducing yoga. And I'm like, oh my God, that would be amazing for recruits to learn that kind of behavior. I myself, after going through this cancer, I meditate with music And I am still the firefighter that'll go hard-charging into a basement fire. But I have no problem saying, yeah, I meditate. I listen to the music and meditate. and But I can still be that hard-charging, as you said, firefighter that'll be the first into a basement fire. And I amaze myself sometimes. I'm like, wow, have you ever changed, Mark? Because... I'm pretty sure you made fun of that training officer doing meditation. But now when I hear of, well, yeah, maybe we should get the recruits doing yoga twice a week or something. I'm like, ah, yeah, we should make them be doing that.
0: Yeah, I was a convert too. I mean, I literally walked off the yoga mat ahead of talking to you this morning. I'm like, I'm going to get it in. It's a good thing to do before I sit down and chat with you because I knew it was going to be a heavy one. So yeah, I'm a convert, longtime convert.
2: (laughs) It's tough to convert the perception of what a firefighter is and – But I think if you get them in recruit and young and and make them realize you're a package and part of that package is this element and you're not complete until you have this element and mental, physical, health, diet, like it's all interwound and it'll only make us better firefighters.
0: Let's finish on two aspects here. We were just talking about investment in self, right? And how that translates to investment in the job. And we've touched on different levels of caring about the job itself and concerns about the future. I posted this a few days ago. I sent it to you looking for your feedback on it. So I'll read it to you. So when firefighters tell themselves that their level of investment in the job is the normal amount, quote unquote, it allows them to categorize those that are more invested as caring too much and those that are less invested as caring too little. And I sort of named it as a mental pacifier, a cozy, smug, self-centered fantasy. How we can then allow ourselves to dismiss people and their investment in the job, and then we don't have to change. Maybe you can expand on how you feel about that.
2: There should be no preconceived notions of how much a firefighter should be invested in the job. What should be expected is you invest as much as you can. And everyone is at different levels. They're at different stages of their life. And so the investment is going to be different. And what I really didn't like about that saying was, we say, oh, that firefighter is too invested or that firefighter's not invested enough. And we don't know anybody's path, their journey that they're on. And to say that firefighter's not invested enough is not fair because we don't know what they're going through. What we should be saying is, as firefighters, we should invest as much as we can. And there seems to be such a pitting against each other of, well, you don't do this, so you don't care. Or, while well, you're doing all this, so you care too much. And we need to be more kind to each other and just understand where we are.
0: I guess where I was approaching it from was you can then decide that you don't have to train. You don't have to practice. You don't have to drill. You don't have to educate yourself because you care the normal amount.
2: So that's what I'm trying to say is there's no normal amount. If you are not proficient in something, then you need to care enough to be training. And if you're not doing that, then you are below a level. But if you're not able to due to other factors, that's what I'm trying to get to is where you are in your journey is going to dictate how much you're doing or how little you're doing.
0: I'd fully agree with you that there's ebbs and flows of how much you can invest. That's 100% true. But I think you and I would have the same idea. If you're labeling people that are doing more than you as too much, and those beneath you as too little, that it becomes a very safe, comfortable place for you not to have to change in any way.
2: As firefighters, it's always changing. And again, we'll go back to 200 years of tradition, Peter by progress. False. We are always changing. There's always something to be doing, and if. As you say, you're not training, you're not drilling or whatever. You're doing a disservice to yourself and to your crew and to the department. I don't see a middle, actually. I see the ones at the bottom that say, oh, they drill too much or they train too much. And then the ones at the top saying, oh, they don't do enough. I guess there is a middle is if you're doing enough for yourself that you currently can do, then that's what you should be doing.
0: And that's the level that changes as you are able to through your life. But you are always showing up to do the most that you can do. I think that's what you're trying to drive at, which I would agree with.
2: You're giving maximum effort of what you're able to give maximum effort to. That's correct.
0: Where my saying was more of like where I'm looking at people are actually excusing themselves to avoid effort at all
2: costs. See, and my thinking of that is if you're using every excuse to avoid, then you're at the bottom. That's not a middle. You're at the bottom. You're trying to not do anything.
0: But they label themselves as the middle.
2: I guess it's a comfort for them. A justification to themselves like, oh, well, what I'm doing is everyone else is doing, so it's okay, which is a terrible thought to have. It really is like, oh, well, I don't need to do anything because everyone else is doing nothing. That's terrible in my mind. But if while I'm doing what everyone else is doing at this point in my life, because of what's going on that's different that's where i go to your journey wherever you are in your journey is but you still need to be giving maximum effort of what you can and i just hate that we are defining firefighters based on how much or how little they do and and there's really seems to be pitting against each other and we're not building Each other up, and that's where I'm sad. In 20 years from now, that we have, like, we have pitted each other so much that we have almost two classes of firefighters, and and it just we're not helping each other, and and we're not being that family. And if someone's struggling, well, let's help them, and let's help them train more, and as opposed to oh, look, they're not doing anything, oh, they're losers or whatever. And
0: but they also then have to be willing to come to the table to be instructed, to be lifted up.
2: But so that goes to in a family you would find out why you would reach out and find out like why is this happening and I'm going to help you get past this and it just we need to be more connected and we need to understand more and that's where I'm sad that it's turning into more of just a job you come to work and you don't know your crew as a family and it's not a family and it's just it's I am honestly, I'm sad about what the fire service might be in 20 years and what the firefighter may look like. I I, I truly am. And, and maybe 20 years ago, the senior firefighters said "Then I'm, I'm sad to think about what firefighting will be like in 20 years. And it has changed immensely. And I'm sure they'd be like, oh my goodness, that is, uh, that is not what firefighting is. And it's a generation thing. And
0: Well, this is a great segue then, I think, to lead into Brotherhood and the Family of the Fire Service. You've touched on it sort of all along the way, but maybe we can just sit in the moment of on that one topic, Brotherhood, Family of the Fire Service. You mentioned how our shift is different and how that's kind of affecting it. So why don't you wrap up with your vision of what Brotherhood, Family of the Fire Service means to you, where we're at, and maybe how we can get to where we need to be.
2: I'll start with the reason that I fell in love with firefighting was from that first day, and I saw the brotherhood. I saw the family. I saw, I saw how connected firefighters were. It extended to the auto extrication competitions, and the extended family was brought into the fire family. And everyone knew everyone, and we looked out for each other. And it just it's what drew me to this career. And it has remained the most important. I wrote for acting captain in 2009. I moved shifts. I moved to a shift. I got to station 12 and I got with, you were there and Chad was there and Dave Bass was there. And I knew that these were the people that I wanted to have my career with. And 2012 came and I turned my stripes back in because the brotherhood, the family was more important than a promotion. My family grew up, my boys grew up with Chad and Dave. Dave's kids have grown up like we do everything together. I can't stress enough the importance of how I feel about family and brotherhood. And so that goes to the honor guard about how we support each other through the honor guard functions. And we support each other's families when tragedy strikes. And it is at the heart of what I believe being a firefighter is. It goes to the eight points on the Maltese cross. There's a reason why these things, when firefighting started to evolve, why these things were attached to firefighting. We have to trust our lives to our coworkers. It's so different than any other job. And I feel the closer we are as a fire family, the better we can do our job. Also, the better we can help each other through tough times. I have sat and had very open emotional conversations with my fire family. And if I didn't have them, I don't know where I would be. And if firefighters are not experiencing that with their crews, I feel really sad for them because that is an experience. That's what it means to be a firefighter. With that said, I am mad at myself because I think the 24-hour shift has started to pull that apart. And I was one of the biggest proponents. I was on the 24-hour committee I was the, like, I was one of three that tried to drive the 24-hour into Brampton Fire, and I now sit back, and I'm, I'm mad at myself that I'm partially responsible for maybe what's happening, because we're not experiencing the closeness, and people are moving far away, and we don't have the bonding we do, and I just, I kind of put some blame on myself, and it's like, really, Mark, like, what was the benefit of that like what did you get sucked into something and
0: you talked about sleep and how important that was so just from what you wrote to me and i agree with you too that it is better health wise but we're struggling with the loss of connection with family so is it just something that this is just another phase that we're trying to rediscover or reorganize what this brotherhood and family of the fire service means with this shift like could a shift be the one thing that tears that apart it just seems like it's such a stronger thing that we can find it within this structure
2: that's what worries me is i wonder can the shift tear apart the fabric because there's a whole generation that have only worked at 24 and i think you guys have never experienced the thursday night after your week of days And you never will. And to me, that is so important. And I'm like, oh my goodness, what have I done? And obviously, I deep down know that solely I'm not responsible, but I am at a loss. And trust me, I have the last few years, I have thought, how do we pull that back together? What can we do to bring that back, to have that same atmosphere and feeling that I had, that we all had, And yes, all the medical research and the documentation saying the 24-hour shift is healthier. You get more sleep and stuff like that. And I have debated this with myself. I have debated this with many firefighters. The loss of the connection and the fire family and the brotherhood, which one is actually better? Where's the trade-off?
0: But as a family, we should want better health for each other. So it's like, okay, well, if we really want that for ourselves and each other, then this is what we need to do. But we also need to have the high value for the family aspect.
2: Right. And so that's where I go to is like, you know how to solve this is we need to work harder. We need to make it more of a priority of the fire family and brotherhood. And we are responsible for letting it slip away. And if we truly value it, we need to work on it.
0: I think where there's a missed opportunity of people not working on it while they're on shift for those 24 hours with each other.
2: That's where you start. That's where it has to start. It has to start there. Because if it doesn't start there, it's not going to start outside. It has to start within.
0: When is the morale the highest in the firehouse?
2: Uh, it's 7 o'clock in the morning when you first get there. and start your 24, I- I'm going to say.
0: Given the arc of, say, a year, and you look at when people are closely bonded and the morale is the highest, what has usually occurred just before that happens?
2: Oh, a very serious call, a traumatic call, I'm going to say, and one that we are successful at. Or a fire? Yes.
0: When we're out doing the job and we all have worked together, you come back and you're right. If we've done our job properly and we're not perfect, but properly means done it properly and and effective as as best we can. There's a different air in the firehouse.
2: Yes, that is true. Correct. We did what we're supposed to be doing and we were successful at. Of course, there's going to be a high and morale is going to be good. And that's what we strive for. Like we strive for success in solving and helping the uh, problem. So, yes. I agree with you there.
0: So Aaron Fields is quoted as saying that work is the solution, right? And I think this is where that also ties to is that very often when you look at issues that come up, work is very often the solution. Doing work on yourself, working yourself, working with others, doing work for others. In the absence of a high volume of fires and heavy calls for us to work at together and bond through, would you say, and especially now being in the training division, that regular drilling and practice every shift you're in is one of the ways that we can hold on to this bonding of working together.
2: I think, and there could be many that get upset with me saying this, and I wouldn't have said this years ago, but I think there needs to be, yes, more structure to the 24, and there needs to be less downtime and less waiting. And if we were constantly working and doing stuff with each other, then yes, That's the start of it, and it blossoms from there. And we have let the 24-hour shift become the excuse of we can be lazy or non-active. And so I'll fully agree with you. I think the 24 needs to be more structured. If we want to hold on to that brotherhood and fire family feeling of We're all in this together and we have each other's back and you're important to me and I want to know about you and all that. And for me, it is important because it's an aspect of being a firefighter and yeah, more drilling, more training, more activity would garner that behavior. I think there's a whole generation though that it would be very unpopular with.
0: But then you can trust each other more, right? Because I've seen you work. I've seen you do the things. We've done this together. It builds trust and bonds. You're working and sweating together and suffering. You're in your gear. You're doing fire-related things. This is the job you loved. You're very often that that's what it is. You go on the call and you actually get to do the job you've been training for. And then that's where that great feeling comes from. We don't get to have that opportunity every day. So we have to replace that with something which is preparing. And then when you are prepared, you go out to the actual call and you actually perform really well and then you you come back, and that's an even better feeling. So to me, it just seems like it's an upward spiral.
2: I fully agree with you. Um, We have let it go, and this goes way back to what we talked about early, leadership and discipline and the new style of leadership and new culture. Yeah, that's what I mean, like the new leadership culture and the ones that are actually being leaded, their culture as well, and the way they were raised and what's important to them, and Everything's tied together and there's no magic solution, but we need to be all working on it or it is, it's is—it's going to be lost forever. And that's where I'm like, what will the firefighter in 20 years look like and be doing or what will they care about or what will they care about?
0: Well, it's encouraging that you have finally found where you want to be and you are where you are doing what you're doing, given what you have to impart how passionately you feel about all those things. I'm really glad we had the time we had to work together. We didn't didn't have a lot of time and I'm glad we had it. And we have butted heads before, we never always saw eye to eye, but I think because we're very similar and that we're just very passionate about things, right? But meanwhile, we're both fighting for exactly the same thing, which is kind of ironic. But I've always just had such a, a high, high level of respect for you. For that reason that you stood up, you always stood up for what you believed in and you're willing to say what's on your mind and, I always knew where I stood with you and you know where you stood with me. And anyways, I'm glad you are where you are. You're missed on the floor, but you're also necessary for the next generation to be where you are now. So I think it's all worked out really well.
2: I really appreciate that, Scott. Years ago, I would have said, yeah, none of that's true, but thank you. I really appreciate that. And I hope that I can add something or give something to, as I said, If one person, like it, I just, I I hope I can be a little bit of a difference that I had some difference makers for me. And I just, I want to be that now.
0: This is a great opportunity to you for you to think you'll have a great reach with this. Your intent is, has a, a longer reach that you've been big enough to sit and share your story. It's important.
2: I've listened to all your podcasts. You simply asking me to do it was overwhelming because i i'm like i am not in the category of of the guys that you have uh, and, and girls industry leaders and firefighters and like it it's just i'm like wow and he wants to talk to me okay i love that i am actually been given a platform to share my story because again if my story can help or change someone then whatever I'll be, I'll be that vulnerable guy, and I don't care anymore. It goes back to me driving past that sign in Flamborough. I just want to help. I just want to give back. Scott, you will never know how reinvigorated I am towards the fire service right now. I have so much energy, and so much passion. The feeling inside of me is unbelievable, and I don't think I've ever felt it before. And it's so empowering. I'm seeing everything in a different light. There'd be people that knew me back 20 years ago, and they're like, "Yeah, I, I don't know what happened to you. Did you bang your head or something?" But I'm like, "Look out! Hear me roar! This needs to be done. We have to do this. This is important." With subjects that I would have never been involved with, or subjects that I thought was important, but I can I now see the value and. It's not just my journey through the cancer, but I have dealt with some other people that have had some bad journeys and I've been a mentor or a listener to them. I used to be suck it up, like just get on with your life. But now I'm like, no, I understand what you're going through and this is, I I will help you however I can. And it's just,
0: this is what getting on with your life actually means.
2: Yeah. And I feel I'm a better person. Like I said, I'm a better husband, a better father. I'm a better person. Like I just, I'm, I feel great.
0: I really do super happy for you man
2: (laughs) thank you very much